Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. So um, this month, I'm trying something new. I'm going to try to teach a, a school uh, classes on advanced programming for advanced programmers. Um, the average person who answered my, my survey has 10 or more years experience. And I think I have something to offer uh, people with sort of this level of experience. The school the website is rocketrealtime.com. So rocketrealtime all run together. Um, and the first class is less than a week. And as always, you can visit me on Twitter at CliffClick or Quora or my blog, cliffc.org slash blog. So today I'm going to talk uh, briefly about the first two classes. Um, and, and, you know, in, in a 10-minute podcast, I'm not going to come close to covering what goes on in a two-hour lecture, in a couple two-hour lectures. So we're just going to lightly touch things here. So the first class will be simply about understanding low-level uh, processor architecture and how that knowledge maps back to your experience and high-level programs with the goal being that you'll be able to sort of casually write faster code. There are certain coding styles people do that are not very sort of modern processor-friendly, and there are some things you can do differently that would uh, achieve the same goals, you know, your goals of getting a job done and writing something out while at the same time running a lot faster. So it might save you down the road some steps of doing optimizations at a, some future date, not trying to make your life complicated, not saying always, you know, write optimized code for everything. No, there are times when you just have to write for getting forward progress done. But there are certain coding styles that when you fold it into your everyday coding, just make things go faster without any effort. And the second class will take a, a look at virtual machines and, of course, a deep dive in the Java virtual machine in particular. But, you know, what is a virtual machine and, and what kind of things does it do and what are the execution models? And we'll take, you know, a quickie look at, like, Python and JavaScript and R and some other kind of virtual machines that are floating around and seeing what you can do with a virtual machine, maybe what you can't. And, and of course, you know, some discussion about jitting and something about data models and garbage collection and the overheads of wrapping all objects in and uh, wrappers to get a better model and whatever. So, you know, lots of stuff. So let me go now um, jump in a little bit about the first class. So, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, processor basics. So this will be like, you know, instructions are cheap and memory is expensive. And memory bandwidth and cache lines are like a scarce resource. And you have to decide... Uh, you know, wh wh where are you going to use them and, and when are you going to use them? And understand that a lot of your program's performance comes around to uh, your counting cache misses. Um, and what kind of coding styles are you using that might be cache-friendly versus not cache-friendly? And how you might do something a little different. Um, so in particular, I, I'll, I'll do a dive into, you know, linked lists versus arrays and why, you know, array and array list oper uh, operations can easily hit hundreds uh, to a thousand times faster than linked lists of, you know, large size. And why that happens that way, you know, and, and then what is it that you get out of a linked list that you can't get out of an array list that maybe you actually don't use or don't care about. And that same model flows out in a lot of large collection classes where you know I have a, a choice between a couple different collections and which one do I grab and why and there's a real cost to that choice if you don't have other reasons to choose one maybe you pick the one that has the you know lower execution cost right um, it's some discussion about what cache lines um, what do they mean for say garbage collection versus on stack you know garbage collection has this sort of hidden cost that's crept up over the years which is uh, every time you allocate a new object, it's pretty much a guaranteed cache mess. 
And cache misses are pretty much the most expensive thing you're ever going to do on a processor. So what can we do about it, and why, why does it happen at all, and what can we do about it, and, and you know, where, where do we go from there, right? And then we can look at uh, uh, striding memory behaviors on caches and how they, you know, what they do to your cache. They've knocked everything out, and it all gets reloaded again, and it's unavoidable if you're looking at large data sets. Um, but it, it, it lets you know why the cost goes there. And as a consequence, um, when you want to look at sort of big data, where big is big relative to your caches, so this is a few megabytes to up to gigabytes to you know terabytes, um, you want to walk that data as few times as possible. A classic reason to walk a big data set is simply to do a format change because it comes in some ugly format that you don't like and you want to get it to a format you do like. So it wants to come in from a network buffer into, say, some JSON or some XML, and of course it's really hard to manipulate either of those, so you turn it into, say, Java objects, and each time you walk the data to do a conversion step, it's fairly damn expensive, so you want to either do it once or not at all, or if you do it, do all the conversions in one go, and then maybe do something with the, your actual goal with the data or whatever. So there's a consequence to coding there. Um, to understand you know, what the cost is and why. And then there's, uh, you know, parallel memory and parallel cores and shared memory data access. And so we'll take a, a, a deep look at how processors share memory and understand basically the dynamics of a data race, how it happens, when it happens. Um, you know, and we we'll take a look at the classic broken double check blocking and show how and why it fails. And maybe as the same sort of, you know, as a consequence of understanding it, you can see how other similar things that aren't double check blocking but can lead to sort of rare failures um, and understand exactly how that failure goes. And, it, and there's a certain mindset I go when I go do parallel programming that I get my head into that helps me understand where I need to have concurrency thinking and where I can just code freely, right? And when I do the currency thinking, there's a couple modes I get into and there's the whole, I'm going to lock it. And then there's the, no, I can do this with a little, you know, light touch on volatiles with an occasional lock going on. And, and, you know, what is it and when is it and how does it work? So there's some thinking you can do about parallel programming that's, a, that's not too hard, um, understanding the, the happens before relationship and what it means at the processor level. So, okay, so that's sort of, you know, first class in a nutshell. Um, there's a bunch more stuff that I'm going to throw in there. And then there'll be time, of course, to go, you know, ask very specific questions about this and that and the other thing. And, and that's part of the goal here is of a class is, get it out of the conference setting. I've taught this kind of stuff in conferences for a decade, well, decades, and it's always fun and it's great, but I always have too much stuff for an hour-long presentation. I blow through it at lightning speed, and, and some fraction of people need to slow down. And here at a class, you'll be able to slow me down, and I actually encourage you and want that to happen because it means that you're learning. And the goal here is to teach people, you know, what the hell's going on and, and, and help help you students to get you know what you can get out of life so it's a classroom setting stop me ask questions slow it down get get everything that you want to get out of it right okay second class um, you know virtual machines in particular Java virtual machine so a little discussion on what a virtual machine is and this gets into you know the difference between programs and machines and answers in a very particular theoretical way where a compiler converts a, you know, it's a program that converts a program to a program, and machines convert programs to answers, and virtual machines are a different kind of machine built on another kind of machine, and that layering of machine on machine can happen quite a few times. Um, you know, you get to these uh, 
you know, old school Nintendo emulators that are built on top of Python or are built on top of the x86, and it's virtual machine on virtual machine on virtual machine. Um, and the reason you do virtual machines is because you get a better programming model than writing it in the machine code of the underlying machine, right? The hardware is going to do machine code only, and that's just what it's going to do. So there's some, some stuff you get to do better for general programming. So a virtual machine is to help programmers. It's written by programmers to help programmers program. Yeah, okay. So you get things like Python, which have this nice interactive feel and it's nice typeless and script-like, and, and it's still got a real language feel to it. It's not actually a script. But there were some design choices made you know, decades ago, and it's about 10 times slower than, say, Java or C. And then there's the global interpreter lock, which prevents running Python itself in parallel, although Python calls native libraries to run in parallel, but Python doesn't go parallel, and why not? Um, it really wasn't part of the core language, but it's so embedded in the implementation, it can't be easily removed. And so there's a discussion there about how you design a virtual machine. So then you get into like JavaScript, which interactive, typeless, script-like, you know, but some lessons learned. Um, it's only, say, 3x slower than C or Java. I'm not sure what the slowest number is, but it's clearly, interestingly, amount slower. WebAssembly might might take some of that back and bring it closer in. Um, but one of the, the, the things they wanted was to have uh, no naked primitives, and that has a real consequence in terms of performance that's really hard to work around in exchange for having a programming model that's more convenient. So it's good to understand that trade-off. Where Java, the, really the goal was to be performant all along, but give you a better model where the better model included full type safety, uh, full range checks, included garbage collection, including you know, memory model and threading things. And they totally hit the performance mark, but it took some years to get there. But the language model supported getting to high performance, i.e. it had naked primitives, which you didn't get in these other models. So there's an interesting, like, here's the design choices you're making, right? And then we're going to talk a lot more about Java virtual machine specifics. So, you know, there's a JIT. Okay, and what is the JIT for? What makes it run faster? What it really does is it brings in a cost model that lets you understand the, the execution cost of the code you're writing. So there is a cost model. It's not as direct as it is in C, where in C you're more or less writing a machine code or assembly in, you know, in a high-level language. Here it's a little bit of a one-off, but there's still a real cost model. And that cost model does let you write high-performance code. Um, and then there's you know, code profiling going on, and how does that work, and where are the profiles gathered, and what is and isn't gathered in the profiles. There's an optimizer, and how good is it? I'll claim it's like GCC-02, having implemented many versions of GCC-02-like compilers, not actually GCC. Um, there's class hierarchy analysis and virtual calls, and virtual calls are very common, so it has to be cheap, and how is that done? And there's this deopt, and we can go into some depth on how deopt works, because deopt lets you load classes, and the new classes get the same performance as the original code, which is not something you get out of C and C++. And then there's, you know, we can talk about GC, and then there's, you know, read barriers and write barriers, and the different kind of GC models that come out, and how they turn into, you know, the program's performance and where the pause times go. Um, talk some about threading and the Java memory model and you know what life was like before the Java memory model and really what it means to how you code. And that kind of goes to that first class's discussion about data races and understanding a coding style <coughs> that lets you write sort of concurrent algorithms, not too much more difficult than sort of regular code. Um, but you have to think in, in about the Java memory model and happens before. Um, and so that gets us into a little bit of, you know, locking in parallel code performance and, and the cost of locks and the cost of, you know, uh, contention versus the cost of data races, right? 
Um, you know what talks some about some concurrent algorithms you get allowed by GC that you can't have without GC. It's kind of a fun notion. Um, talk about the, the some evil requirements were added to Java that probably should never have been added, but they kind of crept in. Like time has this notion of current time millis. It gives you the current time millis. Okay, turns out that it's hard to have that concurrent uh, concurrent across a large count of shared memory cores down to the clock cycle, but it is totally required by actual running Java programs. So there's no Java spec that says this, but actual running Java programs, big web servers, if two different threads get current time millis of, of off by one, which could have happened within a millisecond, but it could happen within a nanosecond, within a single clock cycle, it's gonna go from one number to the next, right? And as soon as that happens, they assume it happens before relationship, um, even if there's not one implied by the language, and what does that mean, and how do you dodge or code around it, and what does it do for the virtual machine and how that's implemented, right? And finalizers is another horrible thing. Um, they look great on paper, turns out to be a disaster, both in implementation and in use cases at runtime. Um, and I'll step through what the fail modes and finalizers are, and, and why it was a great idea that didn't actually work out, and, you know, and it happens, right? And then there's a bunch of stuff that we'd love to have in Java that never showed up um, that do show up in some of these other, by the way, some of these other programming models. So tail call elimination for all those people who love to do uh, recursion as the primary thing, these little functional programming guys like Elm converts things to JavaScript, but they do tail call elimination because they do recursion everywhere, right? True closures. Um, Java doesn't have them. The thunks you get out of, you know, lambdas are pretty close. Um, autoboxing performance fails. Like, what is the silent fail mode in autoboxing? Um, and and why is it an issue? And when is it an issue, right? And then, like, big integer exists, but it's not really very cheap. But you shouldn't need it very often. But it could be cheaper. And JavaScript went the route that said, we're going to make the fallback to big integer cheap. And as a consequence, non-big non integers pay the cost. But the, the fallback's cheap. So it's only a little bit more expensive to hit bigger numbers, and it's silent, right? You just silently get to big integers. And Java didn't go that route, and why not? And then do we care? And what could we do about it better, right? Um, there's no thread priorities, uh, although the VM tries hard to bring them out. That's an OS weakness. We can talk through what that means, because there's a real failure mode there where you're trying to write a... a uh, a, a reactive performant app and you have things you want to do at a higher priority over lower priority because you're trying to get something done. And it's one of the reasons that Java didn't work so well in various kinds of embedded systems and in displays. Um, eventually these things kind of sort of got worked out, but there were some real issues there that remain to this day that other languages totally like went after. Anyhow, there's, there's just tons and tons and tons of stuff. Um, way more than I can cover in two hours, and so, you know, as I said before, uh, I'll slow it down, we'll go into more depth, and there's a chance you can stop me, and we'll, we'll take a deep dive in whatever is, you know, we'll, we'll scratch your itch and get it figured out, um, and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of pumped about this. I'm, I'm really hoping to see people uh, online. The classes will be taught online using Zoom. Um, I will make an effort to have video recordings made, but I want to make sure everyone who participates is okay with that. I think I can get Zoom to record just the host, so if there's audience questions about people who don't want their name or their questions or whatever to come out, I think I can work through those issues. So I'm hoping really that we'll have video available afterwards for the students. Um, and then there'll be the slides in a PDF format or open office or whatever that you can go take and stare at offline at a later date. And then I'll be around to answer questions over email and the like too. 
Okay, so I think that's enough. Um, let me repeat. Um, you can find me always on Twitter and you know Cliff.click and Quora and my blog, cliffc.org slash blog. And then I'm teaching this class, rocketrealtime.com, um, School for Advanced Programmers. And, and that's it. I'm done. Have a great day, and I hope to see you online next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.